Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Episode 21. One. Alex hated the Somerset house. Rooms full of shadow rambled and transformed when he wasn't looking. His parents liked to tell the story of their first visit, fresh from Hong Kong and linen and silk, winding up the long, narrow drive. Dear Alex was so excited to see his grandmama's estate for the first time that he climbed up front beside Jonathan and pressed his nose against the windshield. But when we rounded the hill, he fell back screaming, which, told with the proper arch and timing, yielded laughs around dinner tables in Singapore, Fiji, Sri Lanka, and Grand Cayman, and the clinking of champagne flutes. Alex himself laughed with the other guests, aping their sophistication, projecting charm he did not recognize as charm, a child of eight so far above his more childish self of four. His parents waited for the laugh to finish before continuing the story. Of course, when he met his grandmama, when she introduced him to the house and I got to know him, all fear vanished. He ran down the upstairs halls and jumped on the beds and curled himself in nooks, reading our brave little Alex. And sometimes, if mother felt particularly cruel, she'd pinch his cheek there and turn on him the private smile that always scared him in company. Private things, he already knew, were best kept private. Sharing that smile where others could see, the smile she used to banish nightmares and soothe him to sleep in hurricane winds, sapped its power. One day, he would need that smile and find its potency gone. Their friends at dinner parties on islands around the world did not understand. They were warm weather people, though they professed allegiance to a chill, wet, distant home. Not even his mother understood. She had not known Soldown Manor as a child. She had come to it as a grown woman in father's company. She did not know how it felt to see that crumbling, vine-shrouded expanse, that elegant ruin like some toy or tool God had abandoned, small beneath the boiling gray sky, yet so much bigger than Alex Norse, age four. Sold down Manor, the beast of his family, crouched at the end of the road and watched their approach with rows of enormous black glass eyes. Waiting, it breathed through gated mouths, Long, dark runnels discolored the stone where ivy did not grow, the beast stained by its own ichor. 
There was no end to the thing. If he let it draw him in, he would remain whole, embedded in its belly. On that first trip, he did run down the upstairs halls, in part to flee the skin-wrapped bone sculpture with fierce glittering eyes his parents introduced as Grandmama, but also in part because he thought, now that I'm inside, I must find some escape. If I can map Soldown Manor, I can, if not master it, I at least conjure it to devour someone else and spare me. He jumped on beds to chase out dead souls. He curled in nooks because nothing could sneak up behind him there except the walls. And he read, because buried in a book, he could ignore the feather-like, finger-like shapes moving at the edge of his vision. He held the books close as masks. Mother did not know. Father told the story too, but he did not laugh. Father had been the last Norris raised in Soldown Manor, and there were reasons he made his fortune in Hong Kong. They spent Alex's 12th Christmas at Soldown. In years past, father said, servants lit lanterns to fill the manor with light. For one night, no shadows lingered on the estate. But this year's only guests were grandmama's manservant and her live-in nurse. The only music, the sound of ventilators and heart monitors and a distant drip of water. Father watched his mother on the bed and worked his hands as if washing them. Mother held his arm. He did not seem to notice her. But Alex could not wait in that firelit room where Grandmama lay. In her eyes, darting beneath thin, stretched lids, in the unconscious grasping of fingers like once-taught gloves pulled over a wire frame, in the regular rasp of her machine-forced breath, he found something he feared more than the breathing manner's hunger. He did not run from the firelit room. He climbed the stairs he'd charted in his panic long ago. Round and round and up and up until he reached the long halls down which he'd fled, age four. They seemed narrower now and shorter. Whispers drew him on. In the drawing room where he'd curled in the corner, he looked up. One of the ceiling panels was hinged he had never noticed before. He stacked books on a chair, climbed from the desk to the stack, strained, teetering atop the books with a broom handle, and pressed the panel's edge. With a click, the panel slid back and then down. A ladder unfolded from it like a mantis's arm extending. Soft creaks spoke to long disuse. The ladder's brass feet settled softly into light depressions in the drawing room carpet. Alex climbed, either out of Soldown Manor or farther in. The cramped, low-ceilinged room above was dark. Narrow triangular windows would have admitted sun, but the sun had set long since. By the light from the open trap door, Alex saw shelves on the three windowless walls, all dust covered. One shelf held calipers and needles and knives. One shelf held books, older, larger, rougher than the books in the drawing room or parlor or any of the libraries. One shelf held skulls, rodent, cow, and ram. Lizard and monkey and horse and man. Many boys Alex's age would have screamed. But Alex had spent more than half his life hating the manor and fearing it. He was too tired to scream. If anything, he felt gratitude. On this dark, starless night, the house confirmed his fears and showed itself to him. Against the fourth wall, beneath the triangular windows, stood a desk. Empty, save for a book 
and the book breathed. Here lay the secret heart of the hated house, as small and unassuming as any book with covers closed. He could turn away, retreat, shut the panel, and know he had faced the house's brutal core. He had swum to the bait on the lure and found it wanting. Soldown's hold over him would break. Leaving this room, he need never return to it again. But leaving, where could he go? Save down and down and round and round to the firelit room and his father washing his hands in air. Alex opened the book. He read it by the darkness beyond the window. The night lay on the pages like candle flame, and the words caught and burned with a viscous, wet radiance. Alex touched the book, and the burning words clung to his fingers, sticky and golden and sweet as syrup. He felt warm. He felt strong. And though there were no servants, and though there were no lanterns, and though there were no guests, still, Soldown House filled with light. Two nights until the solstice. Alexander Norse, age enough, as he'd say now, danced a flame from fingertip to fingertip and regarded the enormous tent lit from within to nighttime roadwork brilliance that towered over the farmland in this dry stretch of roads. Far away, a mountain stood. Far above, stars watched. They'd watched him his whole life. He'd soon give them a proper show. Footsteps approached. He hid his light from the world. Sir? his servant said, a wind chime chorus, a fist clenching around broken glass. Others would hear the voice as a human woman's, but he knew and could see the truth. It was his business to know such things. Mr. Alhadaf, to see you. I am wanting, said the old man by the servant's side, for you to explain what you have done. Alhadef's was a bent figure of olive and copper, with fierce black eyes and a fierce curling gray-thorned beard. Norse's servant herself was brass and silver with springs of steel, her face a sculptor's suggestion over a metal skull. Her fingers were knives, her heart a spring, and the only words in her brain were words he'd put there. To the farmer Alhadef's and to Norse's own security team, she seemed a normal human woman, brusque and strong and well-armed. The mind closed to cover a wound, and she was a walking wound. I am sorry if we've offended, Norse said. We have a permit for this dig, and you will be handsomely compensated for the damage my expedition inflicts on your land, though we are, of course, working to minimize such impact. Your men chopped down the olive trees in the eastern field. A regrettable necessity. Ritual ingredients had an unfortunate tendency to resemble a deranged hermit's shopping list. He required a mirror like the one that hung in the old purification chamber, with a frame made from local wood of sufficient age. I am sorry, we will pay you whatever you need. The man flushed. Four hundred years, those trees have been in my family. What payment can you offer? Those olives were not mine. They were my daughter's and my son's. And I will pay you enough, Mr. Alhadev, so they will praise your memory when what's left comes down to them. He extended a hand. Alhadev's did not take it. You have not dug beneath my olives, he said. You cut them down. You do not dig in my land, you build atop it. 
You spilled poisons into the soil. I will report you to the police, to the government. Please, Mr. Alhadevs. Norris set his arm around the man's shoulders. We'll be finished in two days, that's all. You'll be rich, your farm will recover, and you'll be all the happier despite this unfortunate disagreement. Look, come with me. Let me show you the progress we've made so you understand why I can't afford to interrupt our work at this critical moment. He tried to guide Al Hadiths toward the tent, but the man pulled away. Norse's hand grazed his neck. No, the old farmer said. I will not work with you. He tried to say next, but could not. Fingers of skin knit across his lips. The new-grown flesh muffled his scream. He doubled over, clawing at his mouth, but more skin sealed over his fingernails, wrapped his fingers together. Skin climbed up his throat, covered his beard and his hair, sloughed over his nostrils. He fell. His eyes glittered with terror and fury before the skin covered them, too, leaving him to writhe beneath a hardening call of flesh. Norse knelt beside Al Hadiths and stroked the new skin. He breathed softly. Al Hadiths mewed inside, then settled as the skin sang him to sleep. Good. Norse's world felt gray and saturated at once, as if something else from somewhere else replaced his normal vision. In better days, he would have talked the man down, would have charmed him with a smile and a wink and a glass or three of ouzo. Not magic, never magic. The recent strain was wearing on him. Let it wear. He'd be a god soon enough. Bring him, he told his servant. We have work. Sal did not vomit after watching the farmer get sealed inside his own skin, which was progress of a sort, she supposed. Hooray. Jesus. Liam said in the Rhodes Hilton, staring at the grainy night vision camera image on the television screen. The tent flap swung shut behind Norse and the smudge that followed him, carrying the other smudge that had once been the farmer. Magic played havoc with cameras at the best of times. Sal wished it had played a little more havoc earlier. Have you ever seen anything like that? Once or twice, Grace said from her perch on the desk by the wall. She had a thumb in Ulysses. Oh, fucking course. What's that supposed to mean? Liam said nothing. Father Manchu sat on the bed beside Liam, his hands crossed, watching the television image. At least we know we're in the right place. Norris is here. The way he's behaving, spending money, power, influence, using magic. He thinks the Codex Umbra is too. I doubt he'd put so much on the line if he didn't think there was a real chance he'd get the, what did Sal call it, the Norton Anthology of Evil? in exchange. Asante had turned away from the television when the man began to change, not, Sal thought, to judge from her face, out of disgust or revulsion. She'd known what was about to happen and decided not to watch. We knew that already. The Oracle doesn't lie. You've had better experiences with Oracles than I have, Menchu said. He volleyed the conversation back to Liam. What are our chances? In my professional opinion? Liam tapped an incantation on his laptop. The television blanked, then displayed a satellite photograph. We're right, fucked. Here's the site from two weeks ago. Notice all the nothing here, where Norse's tent stands now. The comps on the grid, but they have portable generators too, and if they have a network, it's so hard, I can't even knock on the front door. Physical security, 
Grace added. May not be airtight, but it's strong. He's working with local talent for the most part. They're good. Barbed wire around the base, motion detectors, bright lights, guard rotations. We're not sneaking in. What about Team One? Sal asked. They all turned to look at her. I don't like the gun blazing routine any more than the rest of you, but you have to admit, secret base, top security, evil magic. This is more their bailiwick. I'd rather deal with this on our own, but why shouldn't we call in the big guns? Or the, you know, any guns? Menchu looked tired. I tried them already. Sal blinked. You're right, it makes sense. But Corporal Shah, she's in charge of Team One now, after Bouchard was eaten, doesn't want to risk the chance that Norse could put up a magical fight. The island's full of tourists, and there's some sort of financial conference underway. Society diplomats can only hush up so much. It'll be worse if Norse gets a hold of that book, is all I'm saying. I made that point. If it comes to that, they're prepared to step in. Until he has the book, we're on our own. If he gets the book, they may not be able to stop him. Nonetheless, Menchu said, that's where matters stand. Corporal Shah does not want to start a bloodbath without cause. Of all the times for Team One to grow a conscience. Nobody spoke for a long, silent minute. Finally, Asante turned back to the television. We could use magic. No, Menchu said. I think he wants to enter the Knight's old archives. They used to stand on that hill, but they vanished just before the Ottoman invasion. Not burned, they were sent away. The knights couldn't escape with the codex, but couldn't let anyone else have it either, so they just shoved it off into magic. He's trying to find it again. We could do the same. The ritual's mostly benign. After Glasgow, Oklahoma, and the Oracle, I don't think we're likely to survive another mostly benign ritual. You were the one who suggested the Oracle. And it almost killed us again. He shook his head. No magic. Grace set down her book. Do we have another choice? Well, I might have, Liam said. If someone hadn't taken a day off to go to the movies. Sal closed her eyes as the argument continued. The nearer they drew to the Codex Umbra, the more anxiously they circled the same old fights. There must be an option they hadn't yet considered. Something outside their usual approach, something Norse would never expect a room full of law-minded book burners to try. Oh, she said and opened her eyes. The others were looking at her again with a different, more hopeful expression. What if we steal our way in? No one spoke still, but the silence sounded receptive, at least. Father, you said there was a financial conference this week. Liam, is there a list of attendees? Maybe Norse is there in some capacity. Liam cracked his knuckles and plied the keyboard. Real computer work involved a lot more humming and waiting than rapid-fire typing and animated displays, but before long, Liam leaned back on his elbows, smirking. You know, this job's pretty tough with all the secret organizations on the magic. I'll sometimes forget how good I am. Give it to us, Menchu said. I've been building my known alias file on Norsey, and the point, please. He's not technically attending the conference, but he's on the guest list of a billionaire's only sort of party, being held by one Emma LaCroix on her yacht. Grace groaned. Liam ignored her. Can you score us invitations? Sal asked. Done and done. Liam glanced up from the keyboard. Wait, why? We'll get to that. Now you just need to rent yourself a tux.
We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Two. Now this, Sal said, is how I like my yachts. Whoever Emma LaCroix was, she threw a hell of a party. Hanging crystals reflected firelight, and space heaters cast warm shadows on a deck swarming with the great and good, or at least the great, of fifty nations. Light-capped waves rolled off toward the jewel that was Rhodes. Ocean breeze cooled Sal's skin. Covered with infuriating garish displays of wealth, Menchie wore a black suit, black shirt, and white collar. Asante, something heartbreaking and cream. Sal herself had opted for black and spangles. Asante, thanks to the Vatican Amex, had financed their expedition to procure fancy dress, but Grace had stepped up as a fashion team leader, navigating boutiques, selecting cut and color, negotiating prices, and generally surprising the crap out of Sal. Not possessed by demons. Speaking of seizing opportunities, she snagged a champagne flute off a passing tray and toasted the others. As long as we're here, why not enjoy ourselves? What is there to enjoy? Menchu glowered at a man laughing by a roulette wheel. Asante grabbed his hand. Come on, you old Marxist, let's get to work. She took point, leading them through the crowd. Roulette wheels and baccarat tables crowded the first deck and dancers the second. 
On the third, the highest and least populous level, two massive and mostly naked men pummeled one another in a roped-off ring while an audience drank, watched, and sometimes spoke around the edges. Groans and the pop of flesh striking flesh added a complimentary rhythm to the big band music from below. A bell sounded the round's end. The taller, thinner fighter staggered back to his corner, half his face curtained with blood. Norse stood near the bloody fighter's corner, nodding approval. Two broad-shouldered men accompanied him, sensibly far back, wearing earpieces, and Sal judged from the poor fit of their jackets, armed. Sal cut through the crowd toward Norse. The mooks shifted, but did not try to stop her. Maybe they had standing orders against interfering when a woman in a cocktail dress approached their boss. Enjoying the fight? She had hoped for at least an instant surprise, but Norse turned from the blood with an easy grin. It's just grown more interesting, Detective Brooks. You look well. No thanks to you. Oh, come. I know you're new to our game, but certainly you don't hold a grudge for that minor lapse of mental privacy you experienced at the black market, or for the invigorating chase I've led you on around the world. You killed people, you used me, and you caused me to incur the matress's disfavor. I assure you, you have no idea how much of an inconvenience that presents in my line of work. Good evening to your comrades as well, he added as Menchu and Asante joined them. Madame Asante, unexpected and transcendent, he bowed. Your presence honors me. You really should get out more. You, Father Menchu said, are a monster. The mooks tensed, but Norse raised one hand, and they relaxed. I want power he said, and knowledge for mankind. Your church has spent millennia hoarding magic for no purpose but to scorn it, like a dragon using a mound of gold as a litter box. He raised a glass and drank. Which sounds more monstrous to you? Manchu's knuckles cracked. Sal set a hand on his arm. I did not expect a warm reception, Mr. Norse, Asante said. You haven't exactly been a model of bonhomie. The next round's bell disturbed the music, and the bleeding fighter staggered to meet his opponent. Around the deck, glittering men and women turned back from rails and sea to watch the blood sport. Call me Alex, please. Fist met face. And though we work on different sides, do know that I hold you in the highest respect. I'm waiting for the evidence, she said. For evidence? God, how about my being here, engaging in this conversation rather than fobbing you up on security when I know none of you have a legitimate invitation? We're not allies, madame, far from it. I have tried to check you and your friends at every turn, as you know. The bloody fighter raised his arms to absorb a rain of punches. But we have a common cause. We want to understand this strange new world so we may use it and build a civilization on the breast of the rising tide. You invaded my library, Asante said, and you'd no doubt happily return the favor. The fighter fell back, one eye swollen shut now, rolling with bloody blows, ducking away from jabs. His sweat glittered. A woman in a short skirt laughed at something the man beside her said. You and I, archivist, want to protect the world from its changes. I feel magic should bow to man. In the Codex Umbra, we have a vital tool. Demons collected and collated name by name, with their secret needs and words of power, so each may be called or loosed on the world at the wielder's whim. We could use that power to prepare ourselves. 
Enrich ourselves, you mean, Manchu said. Prepare. We've all seen the signs. Magic is seeping back into the world, whatever the cause. Outbreaks grow common. Children perform feasts of magic the most learned practitioners of our art would have believed impossible ten years back. Your team's staff for magic the way it used to be, not the way it is, or for what it will become. Your organizational goals are outmoded, your objective incoherent. And yet we win. You never win, father. You postpone. Madame Asante knows this. I bet she's told you as much and you've laughed it off. Asante raised her chin. We do the best we can with the materials to hand. As do I. But I have more materials and greater freedom to use them. Like a child left alone in surgery has freedom to play with the tools. Yes, and if such a child's careful, he can learn. I have. Ask yourself this, Archivist. When the world breaks and magic returns, not these pale shadows you've fought and contained for so long, but real magic, golden and true. Would you rather have spent your decades in a terrified vain attempt to fight the future, or preparing yourself to rule the wave? You can't rule a wave, Asante said. We can ride waves, yes, channel them. But waves laugh at scepters. Some powers are beyond our reach. That's what Bible said of lightning. When the walls fall down, I'll be Alexander Norse, tamer of demons, and your backward church will stand, as ever, on the wrong side of history. But I'm no genius. I just have vision. You have the languages, the mind, the discipline. Work with me. We could achieve wonders. That's enough, Menchu said. We're leaving. How about it, Asante, or you, Detective Brooks? You have hidden depths. I can teach you how to use them. Sal looked away. I'm good, thanks. The father's too hidebound, but if either of you want to be on the winning side, well, I'm always hiring. And I have a very comfortable benefits package. Menchu's wet, dark eyes glistened. You won't win, he said. Asante put out one hand to stop him, but he ignored her. I've seen a hundred like you before. You talk revolution, but you want power for yourself. You sicken me. Norse retreated a step, his forehead wrinkling in perplexed innocence. Excuse me, a deep voice said. I'm afraid I'll have to ask you three to leave. There were four of them, all built to a size Sal didn't know people were still made. Shoulders that broad should have gone out of style with Hercules. All right, she said, we were going anyway. In the ring, the bleeding boxer ducked around a punch and struck his opponent three times in the face. A fourth punch to the body doubled the man over, then back to the head, cross after cross. The opponent fell to a light rain of applause. That went better than I expected, Menchu said, after the security launch deposited them on the dock. You did great, father. I thought you laid it on a bit thick myself, Asante said. I could have handled him without trouble. Sal leaned against a stanchion, slipped off her left shoe, and rolled her ankle until it popped. The plan wasn't to handle him. We wanted him angry, or we wanted someone angry at least. Arturo does have some anger issues to work out, it's true. I, Father Manchu said, staring off at the retreating launch, do not have anger issues. I'm just passionate. Of course you are, dear. 
They found a small dockside restaurant openly and ate stuffed grape leaves and small fried balls of dough and octopus until Grace and Liam returned. How did it go with the guards? Sal asked when they sat down. We tried to keep Norse distracted. I hope we gave you enough time to work. Time wasn't a factor. Grace polished off the last of the fried dough. I set the hook, but neither guard was biting. Damn, Sal said. I guess it's plan B, then. I didn't say that. She blinked. What? Grace's eyes darted right to Liam, who'd taken a brief respite to consult the calorie tracker on his phone. He locked the phone, halved a stuffed grape leaf with his knife, and popped one of the halves into his mouth. Lines of muscle rolled across his jaw as he chewed. When he swallowed, he grinned. Oh, Sal said. He dried his fingers, then withdrew a folded cocktail napkin from his tux. I got a number. On we're in luck. He and his roommate go on shift tomorrow at sundown. I'll drop by early. It says he can get his roommate out of the hotel. I'll take the guy. Grace will jump his roommate, and we'll relieve the gate guards. Easy. Won't the team be worried if they don't recognize the relief? If this were a regular outfit, Grace said. Yes, but they're stitched together contractors. Nobody knows anybody else. A lot of the security personnel were only hired for tomorrow night anyway. Norse expects something big. Because of the solstice, Asante said after a mouthful of beer. The stars are right for the ritual after sundown. But Grace and Liam only go on shift at sunset. We won't be able to get in the camp fast enough to stop them. Sal frowned. We need more time. Liam pondered the second half of the grape leaf, then shrugged and ate it, too. I think I can slow them down a tick. Three. Norris almost missed the camp in the pre-dawn mist. He frowned. He should have seen the searchlights from the road. Go back, he told his servant. Turn here. By the time they reached the gate, the sun had burned off all but a few wisps of clinging fog. Guards stood at attention, rifles slung, dark circles under their eyes. Sir? Norse descended from the jeep. Mud squelched beneath his patent leather shoes. Why are the lights off? What happened? Power died at midnight, the guard replied. We ran off generator fuel until we were down to the reserves. After that, we killed the lights and doubled patrols. No one's entered or left the camp since the outage. They should have called him. But he left orders not to be disturbed, so long as the tent was not compromised. He'd needed sleep last night and meditation. Incense burned on rooftops, charms chanted to prepare. They scratched inside his skull. Burned his eyes. The power's still down. The utility office doesn't open until eight. We called their emergency number. No response. Fine, Norse said, though it wasn't. He detected the book burner's hands at play. You left the fuel reserves. Yes, sir. So they'd have power to open the way and keep it open all night. Good. He clasped his hands behind his back, looked down, looked up. Get on the phone to the utility and send a team to buy extra fuel. One way or the other, I want power to the camp before dark. Yes, sir. He returned to the jeep and swore fluently while waiting for the gate to open. Trouble? His servant asked in a voice like hanging knives struck together. Not yet. But something that could become trouble if we aren't careful. The jeep jostled over the dirt road his men had carved through Alhadif's field. 
He wished the servant could offer suggestions of her own, could plan in ways that surprised him. He wished Asante had accepted his offer. He'd walked a long and lonely path from Soldown Manor to the Isle of Rhodes and left too many people behind on the way, lying in their own firelit rooms. Without power, I'll have to perform the final incantations manually. Watch the tent, guard the camp. She parked the vehicle and said, yes. The tent, in morning light, looked gray. Dew clung to the thick fabric and wet his hand as he parted the flap. Coils and wires, Jacob's ladders and silver tubes running with a supercooled mixture of antifreeze and blood, all the accoutrements of magic, clustered around the tent's edge, leaving a patch of bare earth in the middle, crisscrossed by more wires terminating in a silver circle. The circle, in turn, surrounded a mirror. All the devices and systems, save the mirror, were standard, insofar as standards existed for this work. They'd been tested, and those who performed the tests had not died yet. The devices amplified and accentuated power. Only fools trusted objects that worked magic on their own, but amplifiers made business sense. Back in the old days, whole monasteries of cultists might have gathered to chant the same spell, lending their voices and their blood. Hardly tenable in the modern age. Industrialization spelled the end of all the old guilds and cults, even the mystic ones. But the mirror was different, was necessary. The most basic of all laws of magic was the principle of correspondence. Like calls to like. Magic, at its root, was a form of con artistry. Talk fast enough in the proper languages, and you might convince the world two similar objects were the same. The Knights of St. John left few records of the old library that once stood where Alhadif's farm lay now. They did not want the Vatican to learn the depth of their betrayal, however well-intentioned. Nor could they take the Codex Umbra with them when they fled Rhodes. The demons within the book railed against imprisonment, and there would be too many chances for them to break free on the long flight west. So, the Knights used what power they'd gleaned from the book's pages and made the library swallow itself, unmoored it from this or any world. That much he'd learned from darkness and divination. But he'd found the key in an otherwise inoffensive English monk's diary describing the rituals of entry. We pass through the antechamber. We regard ourselves in the blessed mirror carved from olive wood of this isle, blown from glass of this isle, finished with consecrated silver. In its light, our impurities stand revealed, and through the mirror, we enter the sanctum of the book. A mirror was easily made. The olive wood he'd cut from Alhadif's groves, nor was consecrated silver hard to find in these fallen days. The mirror glittered ugly, misshapen, in the center of the tent. It cast bubbling and imprecise reflections. But when night came, it would serve. His tools were useless without electricity, but while he waited, he could prepare in the old-fashioned way. Alhadif's lay before the mirror, entombed in his own skin. Norse watered him with a can, the hide call drank hungrily. The man within writhed. Don't worry, Norse said. We're almost done. He drew a knife. Then he drew Alhadif's blood. There were screams, of course, but muffled and easily ignored. The jeep nurse's camp sent to town for fuel blew a tire on the way. The man in the passenger seat stepped out, knelt to check the tire, and growled, where the hell did you learn to drive? No response from the cab. The man, formerly of the passenger seat, sighed. 
That was the problem with civilian security. Everyone always wanted to play hard bastard of the week. If you were lucky, you worked with men or women you'd served beside. You had nothing to prove to them, and they had nothing to prove to you. If you were unlucky, you got a job like this. And then came a pharaoh who knew not Joseph, Exodus read. I'll get the spare. No answer. At least the money was good. He shouldered his rifle, walked around to the trunk, and began to unscrew the spare. An arm wrapped around his neck and squeezed. He tried to speak, but breath wouldn't come. Tried to bowl his assailant to the ground, but his limbs were heavy. His world went dark. Gray settled the murk to the ground, estimated his body weight with her eyes, drew a syringe, and pinched it into his neck. She tossed the murk into the trunk, then dragged the driver around from where he sat, as unconscious as his comrade. She changed the tire and added the wrecked one to the trunk with the unconscious men. A dust-colored bird sang in the tree overhead. Three seconds shy of your previous gank, two burks and a tire change record, Liam said over her earpiece as she kicked the Jeep into drive. But it's early yet, and you may not want to overexert yourself. You did a good job with the power. Can you do that sort of thing anytime, anywhere? God, I hope not. The local utility was running an old SCADA system, a few update cycles behind. Once they find out what I've done, they'll patch it. So they made a mistake. I would have found a way. You and Sal aren't the only competent ones around here. She turned onto a side road toward the shed where they'd chosen to store the unconscious mercenaries. You sound defensive. What's up? Static and silence over the line. Why are you and Sal such good friends all of a sudden? She parked the jeep, entered the shed, and returned with burlap sacks and a coil of paracord. Good stuff, paracord. Durable, cheap, knotted well, cut without fraying, and even if it did fray, you can melt the end solid with a pocket lighter. Most technological development since what Grace preferred to call the good old days, back in Shanghai in the 20s, she regarded with suspicion at best, but paracord could stay. She measured out the cord and coils around her arm. Friction between coworkers waste time. And I don't have much to waste, she didn't say. Somewhere, liquid wax ran down a candlestick. That was her life, burning off with each waking instant. She'd worked beside Liam for years, from his perspective, but he respected her privacy and hadn't yet learned about her candle or her curse. Sal she'd known for months. The woman was infuriating, refused to respect tradition or precedence or Grace's own boundaries. And yet, when Sal found Grace in her solitude, she'd reached out. Why to her, not him? She cut the measured rope. You didn't give me the time of day for three years after I joined this team, he said. That's fine, I respect a professional. But now I'm wondering if maybe it was just me. Did I do something to piss you off? Do you not like me? I like you fine. Sacks for the legs and arms, blindfolds, cord around everything, not too tight. She hefted the first unconscious man over her shoulder. Maybe Sal just has a winning personality. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith. And additional editing by Corey Barton and Brooks Ewald. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Bookburners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.